Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Today, we are diving into ears. I know you guys really enjoyed the podcast episode about feline otitis previously. So today, we are jumping into canine otitis with Dr. Millie Rosales from Miami Veterinary Dermatology in Miami, Florida. We have a great conversation just about dealing with these cases, not only during the acute flares of otitis, but also what do we need to do for maintenance therapy to manage them chronically? I really hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, thank you guys for joining us for another episode of the DermVet podcast. I'm really excited because I get another dermatologist who does a lot of very cool things on social media joining us today, and that is Dr. Millie Rosales from Miami, Florida, very uh, more humid weather than we're going to experience here in the Pacific Northwest. Um, And you can find her on Instagram at gotitchypet, correct? Yes. Yeah. And she does a lot of amazing content and a lot of educational things there. So definitely go check her out. And Dr. Rosales, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me, Ashley. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have a lot of fun, I think. Um, And we're covering a topic that I haven't actually done a ton of yet on the podcast. You know, it's been a lot of focusing on allergies, um, even some autoimmune diseases, but we're going to dive into the world of canine otitis. So I've done some, uh, I did a podcast episode with Dr. Diesel about feline otitis, but you know, canine otitis by far, we're going to see a lot more common and we get asked a lot about. Um, so I'm excited to kind of explore this topic with you because we could definitely cover quite a bit in this episode. Um, so starting out, just thinking of how important our basics are, right? Like we need to look in the ear, we have to evaluate it. We have to see what's going on. Um, what are some tips you have for general practitioners as far as performing an otoscopic examination in an allergic dog? Yeah. And actually something I always, when I do little lectures on otitis is I actually, I tell practitioners to just get into the habit of looking at ears. Um, I think sometimes in GP, you know, you do your exam and the ear's not a problem. You kind of ignore it. Um, but it should just kind of be a habit to always look at it because I think it gives you just good practice on how to look inside an ear, what the ear canal looks like, what's normal, what's the different variants of normal. Um, So that's um, one thing that I always kind of share with the GPs. And then I guess with allergic dogs, a lot of them are very, can be very painful with their ears. And sometimes if, if it is extremely painful, then, you know, putting off the exam or using some anti-inflammatories to, um, for a few days and having them come back, or if we have to sedate them to, to be able to examine the ear properly. Um, so those are kind of some of the, the tips I, I'd like to give out. Yeah, I think those are great. And I think something important that you brought up in the beginning um, was getting just used to it. So sometimes if we say have like a student coming to spend time with us, you know, I'll do an otoscopic exam. 
the dog will be completely fine, not really jump. And then they'll go to do it. And they'll, you know, they'll like the dog will jump or get uncomfortable. And they're like, well, gosh, what am I doing wrong? I'm like, I do this all day, every day. Like this is all I do. So, you know, getting used to pulling the ear canal up and out so that you can take the L shaped canal and straighten it. Um, Because we do see a lot of times they get uncomfortable and jump when you get to that junction of the horizontal and vertical canal, because there's a groove there and there's a turn you have to go through. Yeah. So um, what I always suggest is exactly what you said is like, practice, like practice on pets who are not uncomfortable. So if you're in a general, in a general practice and you're doing spays or neuters, like yep. practice yep. on the dogs that are under general anesthesia exactly. and are not yep. uncomfortable. And then exactly. you can work to it. Yeah. You can work yep. to the ones that are ouchy and painful. And I also totally agree that sometimes you have to say today is not the day. Like today is not the day. Um, you know, and I'll tell owners that like, they're really swollen. They're very painful. I can collect my cytology. Um, but I think we need to take a few weeks to really open things up, make them more comfortable. And then let's reevaluate. Yeah. Um, cause it's really not worth if we're going to deal with a pet with chronic ear disease, we don't want to already make them head shy and not want to be evaluated with us, you know, over time when we know that we're going to be doing several otoscopic examinations on that dog because of their exactly. chronic disease process. Yeah. Yeah. And so going to ear cytology, that obviously also being something really important um, as dermatologists. Yeah. We love our cytology. Yes. Yes. What are your thoughts or tips on collecting that? Yeah. um, Yeah. So every otitis case should get an ear cytology. Um, I mean, there's no ifs, ands, or buts on that (laughs) one. Um, So, I mean, with Collecting, I mean, we use our cotton tip applicator. Um, if we have a dog that's struggling, um, you know, with um, maybe peanut butter, doing something to kind of distract it so we can just get a sample. I mean, every now and then if we get like an aggressive dog, we'll, we'll have owners try to get it for us. Um, I mean, sometimes that's not exactly the best sample because I'm not sure if it gets really far down enough. Um, but yeah, that's what I, I, I usually do. Or if there's any... Um, lesions on the pinna. Um, I think I did a little post about that, not ignoring the, the pinna, because many times you'll see that with otitis dogs getting a, a cytology of that area as well. Yeah. yeah. The pinna is often overlooked, isn't it? Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. I love that post because it is so important. Like I have had dogs come in and their canals are beautiful. Like they're like, look good. I cytology anyway. Cause like maybe I've been surprised before, like maybe there's something there and I just won't find anything. Then all of a sudden you'll lift up the pinna and you'll just see it's like red inflamed or like kenified. And sometimes just treating that, like that is what's caused a lot of the head shaking or discomfort. Yes. 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 And I get, a, I, I get quite a number of those, like just referrals, like, Oh, this ear infection is not getting better. And it's just, it's the pinna. So maybe there was an ear infection and the ear meds, you know, treated that part of the otic canal, but the pinna is what's left. And so that that's an important part to treat. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Part of the ear. Yes. <laughs> an extension of the ear. Yeah. It's all skin. Like when owners are asking about like, why are the ears affected with the allergies? Yes. Like they're tubes of skin. Like they're yes, just- exactly. Yes. I remember learning that in my residency. <laughs> yep. Tubes of skin yeah. just going down. It's the same thing. But the problem with ears is that if they get swollen and inflamed, they go down on each other. So like they kind yes. of together and then you, you can't really have access to the ear at that point. 
Right. Um, and I have had cases too. Like I had one actually recently same where I had to have an owner collect it. And I think because the dog was really worked up, we had previously sedated the dog. Um, but you know, we were to get a full examination and the dog was even difficult to get sedated. And we, on the recheck, obviously is a big dog. So the expense and the trauma of having to sedate again was a lot for the owner. So we, she was able to sample and I kind of guided her through it, but you just have to kind of also mention the limitations. Like you said, like, yes, I'm happy to look at that. Don't know how deep we're getting into it, but certainly right. it's better than not collecting anything. Um, right. And sometimes you do have to sedate. Like I've, I've had cases where, you know, we know we're going to skin test soon. So it's like, well, maybe we'll wait till we sedate for skin testing and I can look deeper and really exactly. evaluate just to make it easier on the pet. Yep. But doing fear free methods, like you said, like peanut butter, you know, spray cheese, if we're not worried about like a yes. food allergy. Yes. Yes. Yeah. It can be super helpful. We've done like sprays, cheese on pretzel rods. Um, you know, some, some pets are so good that if they're really distracted, we can even get like a video toscopy unit down when they're awake, just to evaluate, not so much like do a really in-depth procedure. Um, and then, like you said, sometimes just taking a step back and saying, well, maybe today's not the day we're going to get the cytology. Maybe we need to send the pet home with some gabapentin or trazodone, you right. know, really get our pre-visit pharmaceuticals on board. And then let's come back and readdress and see if once you make them more comfortable and we're able to give them something for that anxiousness, you know, maybe then we'll have an, a better time being able to fully evaluate the ear. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. So one yeah. So once we've actually gotten our sample and now we're getting to the, you know, age old question. Okay. And I know there's gonna be several layers to this. Like, what if we just find a yeast otitis? What if we find cocci? What if we find rods? What if we find no bacteria? Cause sometimes that happens too. Like maybe there's just some neutrophils, but no active infection. What are some of the things you're thinking of? We'll start with flush because as dermatologists, we know we love our topicals. So what are some of the things you're thinking of as far as selecting an ear flush based on how the, say the history of the pet, how the ear canal looks and what organisms you're finding under the microscope? Yeah. You know, I, I think shortly after my residency, I think I had like a kind of a batch of different ear cleaners, um, different ear cleaners. And I'm kind of honestly now, so I guess this is I'm 15 years into doing this, that I kind of just really have two. And so I'll have something that's ceremonialytic. So if I have a really kind of very ceruminous, waxy ear, um, kind of very typical with, with yeast, um, I'll use that. Or, um, I mean, honestly, I, I'm a big fan of the Epiotic Advanced, and, and I use that, I mean, honestly, really for, for any kind of ear, ear problem, unless you know, they're, they're, the pet's having a reaction to it. Um, so those are kind of my, my two um, with, with really any kind of ear infection. Um, and um, I mean, and then cleaning, it kind of depends on the extent of the infection, on how often they're cleaning. Um, and I mean, that's a huge one for me, you know, teaching owners how to clean. And actually now with COVID, we kind of send them a little video on, on how they could do that at home. So that's, that's kind of like no different within we, I tell clients with dogs with allergies, like you need to bathe, bathe, bathing is important. This is like another thing kind of similar in the ear. You need to clean that ear really well. Um, I kind of explain to them about the whole 
kind of self-cleaning mechanism of the ear that it kind of fails when there's so many infections and how we kind of need to help that ear out um, during the process here of trying to get that infection cleared up. Yeah. I think you hit on- what do you, what do you like what do you do with ear ear cleaners? I'm always curious with yeah. other the other side of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we are as far as like the United States goes, we are about as spread it, out as yes. I just yes. need to Seattle and then it would be about as I guess Alaska technically <laughs> be about as far as we could get from each other. Yeah, and I, this is why I love talking with other dermatologists on the podcast. Cause I've changed what I've done learning from other people. Um, I'm still in the realm where I still have, I wouldn't say a ton. I would probably say we have about three to four that I rotate through depending. Um, so I agree with serumanolytic. So for me, if it's going to be a pet that just kind of gets that excessive debris and they're not really infected or maybe a little infected, but not, you know, not traumatically affected, um, then I tend to use serumanolytics. So I use the Duxo micellar a lot personally. Um, we have had clear otic in our clinic before. Um, I know the other dermatologist I work with, she really likes pH notics. So yes. we kind of have the two serumanolytics just based on like what each of us like. Um, the pH notics definitely has like a nice little citrus. Yes, it does. It. Yes. Yeah. A lot of clients <laughs> like that. Like yes. Yeah. 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 And then infectious wise, it kind of depends for me. So we have, um, so we have Tris ultra, Tris ultra with keto. If we get a lot of gram negative organisms, um, if I see a lot of rods under the microscope, I do like to reach for those just because I, I, I do feel like it's helpful when I'm treating with topical medication to have the power of the Tris EDTA to kind of, you know, punch little holes in the gram negative right. organisms. Um, and then I do, we carry malacetic ultra as well. If I get, uh, cases where they just really struggle with recurrent yeast infections, like Tris Ultra with Keto can still help with that, obviously, because there's keto in it. But I do like Malacetic Ultra for those cases. I feel like it works well. It has a, a small amount, a uh, low percentage of hydrocortisone in it. I don't know if that dramatically helps or not because it's pretty mild, but it makes me feel good. Uh-huh. Um, so I think those are the ones that we tend to use the most. And sometimes we'll get, you know, certain, um, cases where we might special order something like a trisclor flush or something like that. But I'd say those are probably the ones I rotate through the most. I think you brought up something else really important too. And that was that you take the time to educate your clients. And that is, that can be hard right now, right? Because you're, like you said, we're curbside. We're all super busy in the clinic. It's like, oh gosh, adding something else to the list. Um, but I think, you know, either having something you can insert into your discharge instructions, explaining it, like you said, you made a video and you can easily send that to your clients or having a handout. It's amazing. If you tell a client just to flush the ears and you don't explain what that means, exactly. what they will do. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yes. They'll just say, Oh, I wipe the outside of the ear canal or, uh, you know, I just kind of put it in there and, and didn't do anything else. So like we really explain, fill up the canal all the way, exactly. massage the canal for 30 to 60 seconds, let the pet shake their head out, wipe just the outside of it. Don't worry about going in. Exactly. With the it's super important. Yes. 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 Um, yeah. We got some where they just um, squeeze the solution into a cotton ball and then the cotton ball <laughs> yeah. um, put drops down the ear canal. So yeah, cleaning and kind of keep cleaning till all that debris comes out, um, especially with um, 
pseudomonas cases because mm-hmm. I feel like I just that's the majority of what I see and I see some pretty bad ones um, that the cleaning part is just it, it's crucial. I mean, even to the point where now, like, um, I mean, every now, I mean, I kind of question some owners if, if they were, I mean, I'm sure they're making their best effort where, I mean, we're just having them come in. Hey, just come in. We'll do it. I mean, we'll, we'll make it a quick little visit, but just come in and let us do a good job. I mean, just kind of even from my end to see, Hey, you know, is it me that I'm not doing something right with my treatment or, you know, is it from their end? And so, I mean, I will say for, for those cases and the clients who are willing to come kind of like every other day, it, it's, it's just huge when, when we do it. I mean, I, I could tell that it's just, it, it's hard. I'm sure it's hard to do it at home. Some dogs seem to be not as compliant at home than they are when they're in the hospital. So um, yeah, I, I just wish sometimes I had extra, um, extra pair of hands, techs who can just kind of, that's their little job, just kind of cleaning ears <laughs> for us. Yeah. It is amazing, isn't it? When you get the dog who comes in and it's like, you believe the owner, you're like, I believe you that they do not like this at home, but then in the clinic, they're totally fine. Yeah. Like, oh, <laughs> it's incredible. I am so sorry that they changed like this for you. Cause it's really like yeah. not a struggle for us to do it, but I believe that they hate it at home. Yeah. And yeah, I think in home, you know, doing, um, in clinic flushings can be really, really helpful. Um, and sometimes you get those just really nasty pseudomonas otitis cases where they do need to go through something like a videotoscopy and just have a very, very deep, thorough deep, flush yeah. because you just cannot get all the debris out without it. Right. And I think that can be really helpful as far as like frequency of flushing. So I know this absolutely changes based on the case. What's kind of your thoughts. So say you have Cause I think what's important for people who are managing otitis in general practice is to realize there is not a blanket one size fits all protocol for ear disease. Um, there's, you know, even you said, oh, you don't carry as much, but you still carry two flushes. Like it's still more than just one. Um, and we obviously are going to have different topical medications that we use as far as frequency. Cause I get asked that a lot, like, well, how often do you suggest people flush the ears? So let's just kind of knowing that this could have a ton of variety to it. Let's just say, yeah two cases. First case, um, awful pseudomonas, purulent debris within the ear canal. Say you're going to use something like a little oral steroid to make the pet comfortable. So comfort wise, they're okay tolerating the flush. And then compare that to, um, an allergic dog who struggles with recurrent otitis. Um, but as a maintenance, we just need something to keep the frequency at bay, but they're actually doing pretty well. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So for your first scenario, it, it would be daily to twice mm-hmm. a day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know, I just see the most nastiest pseudomonas. And I often wonder if other parts of the world see the same thing as I do, but yeah, daily to twice a day. And then, I mean, for an allergic dog, it may just be like once a week or, or twice a week kind of maintenance cleaning. I think that's just important to realize. Like, I think, cause I'm very similar. Like Um, I say like once a day, maybe every other day, if it's really difficult for the client to do, if they're really bad otitis, um, but then, you know, yeah, run of the mill allergy case, like once a week, maybe twice a week, kind of just fluctuating depending on what that dog does well with. But I think it's important to see how different those are because you may also get through the pseudomonas case. They are doing well, knock on wood. Cause yes, they can get pretty nasty. And then you can pull back the frequency, 
but that's right. really important to communicate to the client. Cause if you say, Oh, flush the dog's ears daily. And they think this is a forever thing, right. That might be super disheartening for them versus, okay, can you give me a month of doing that? Or can you give me two to three weeks of doing that? Right. And we'll get you back in and we might be able to pull back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I know for our pseudomonas cases at, at the beginning, it's intense. I mean, I mean, I will say nine times out of 10, we're, we're doing a middle ear flush and the drops they're putting in the cleaning, but, but we do talk about how all that slowly is going to start getting tapered off kind of depending on how, how the pet responds. Yeah. yeah. And that's great. Cause then it gives people kind of something to look forward to, right? Like, okay, if I commit to this right now, we get through this, we will get to a point where, okay, I could do it once or twice a week. That's okay. Just daily right. is going to be very time consuming. Do you time your flushes with when they utilize eardrops in your protocol? So like um, so me, we, I do it. Like I usually tell owners, you know, flush the ear out, say like 15 minutes before you apply an eardrop. Do you time it like that? Or does it really make a difference in your eyes? Yeah. I'll tell them just to flush. And this is interesting though, because I do tell them to clean and then wait maybe about five, 10 minutes and then put eardrops. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's kind of, you know, you think it's kind of obvious, but it's not <laughs> where some owners like, should I put the drops first and then clean? I'm like, no, the other way around, <laughs> make yeah. sure you clean that ear. Well, cause I want that medicine to be going down a nice clean ear and not an ear full of debris. And yeah. explaining that's important. Like you said, things yeah. that seem second nature, even, even for veterinarians who aren't specialists in this, like, yeah, clean it out, put it in it align the canal. That makes so much sense, yeah. but that does not necessarily come second nature to people who are not yeah. in this profession. So right. it does matter. I have had clients before, like, you know, come in and say, they did it the other way or they didn't line it up. And I explain why, like we, if there's a lot of perulent debris, if there's a lot of that slimy Brown stuff, like we want the, the actual medication, like that drop to penetrate the epithelium. So yes. we need to remove things like the biofilm and Film. you know all the nasty stuff that we can deal with. So it just kind of goes back to why educating is so extremely important in these cases. Yeah. So moving on to the age old question of eardrops. And again, there, we're all going to have different opinions on, you know, what drops we like. It doesn't mean any drops are bad or good. We just, it, I think it comes down to how you train, what you have experience with. We cannot carry every single eardrop in the clinic. Yeah. We all have different yeah. ones that sometimes we formulate in house. Um, so what are some of your favorite eardrops and you know, we'll have to, maybe we take off our dermatology caps for a second and not imagine the worst of the worst ear case as we're used to seeing, but just say like an allergic dog that you manage and they break out with a moderate yeast otitis. Let's start with yeast. Like, and you, you think you need to actually put them on an eardrop and we're going to have to go beyond maybe a flush. What topical drops do you tend to use in those cases? So my favorite now is the the Burback Ezotic. Um, so I'll use that for, for um, yeast otitis. And um, I mean, I'm sure you know, but for, for those who don't know, it kind of comes like in a little pump bottle. And it's just, it, I love how it's easy to dispense. Um, it's just really convenient for the client once a day. So that that's kind of my really go-to. I mean, every now and then um, I might compound something like a clotrimazole like a 1% clotrimazole and 
with dexamethasone and then I'll have an owner do something like that. Maybe just to avoid the antibiotic part, mm-hmm. um, um, not to want to constantly keep putting antibiotics in an ear. So, but yeah, like that Ezotic was available a while ago and then it went on back order and then it kind of came back, I think last year. So that's kind of the one I use often for, for malassezia. I always kind of forget about e- Ezota because yeah, it came out and it was really exciting and then it went away and then I didn't yeah. hear about other countries having it. And then I would kind of like not think about it and then it would come back. So that's a really good point. I'm gonna have to probably think about going back to that one a little bit because I never really came back to it after it went away for a while. Um, I, yeah, we, you know, we'll make some kind of in-house solutions too. Um, I think in general, you, you, a pretty, a pretty standard yeast otitis is pretty forgiving. So I feel like for the most part, if there's some sort of antifungal in a product, you know, and I'm saying most, cause we absolutely have ones that are difficult. Um, they don't respond, but in general, yeah. yeast is a bit more forgiving and, and most yes. of the things, whether it's what's in Momatamax or, you know, most Tresiderm, like most of them are going to be pretty effective against yeast, um, in a run of the mill standard case. Um, if I get ones that are a bit more difficult, like for some reason they're not responding, um, you know, we get ones that are super tough and they just don't respond the way you'd usually expect yeast to respond. Then I will reach for pose if needed, just because of the posaconazole being something different in there. Um, you know, if it's a mild yeast infection and the owners have a hard time treating at home, um, we will use something like Claro or Cernia. And I find that can be effective, but I have seen cases not respond to. Um, so those can be tough moving to like cocci, what are kind of your go, go to, and again, we're getting our head out of it's instantly a methicillin resistant staff. Like it's just say a a little, yeah, yeah, staff. Yeah. Yeah. I will use the, so it's the human neomycin polymyxin hydrocortisone odic solution. Um, which is actually, I don't know, in our end, it's on back order right now. So sometimes I'll even borrow like ophthalmology, neopoly, neopoly DAX or neopoly HC, and I'll do that in the ear. Um, I don't really carry Tresiderm. I mean, I guess that would be a good option, um, but that's kind of my go-to. I mean, I, I will sometimes use the Ezotic um, for, for bacterial um, infections. So those are kind of my, my two for for little basic staff. Yeah. Um, basic and then I will, <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I will use the, um, the Neopoly as well for, for pseudomonas. Um, and I mean, that's kind of how I was trained at UF and, and it worked really well. That polymixin um, is, is really great. Yeah. I think it can be really helpful for pseudomonas too. And, you know, again, Cocci, like in a, in a general case, if you're getting the underlying disease under control and working on that, you would hope that it's not going to automatically be a really resistant one. You know, right. we'll use things like Batril topically. I don't use it really systemically very often at all, but topically, you know, we'll use it, um, whether it's Batril Otic or because we are seeing a lot of inflamed ears, we'll make something like a Batril Dex, you know, everyone has their own form way of making that like a Batril Dex conified or a Batril Dex saline. Um, and then sometimes we will, you know, still use the things like Mometamax or Positex just because yeah. they do have the antibiotics in them. Um, but we just have to be really careful and cautious. And this is why rechecks are so important. It's, you don't want to just assume, oh, that's not so bad. So it'll probably get better and not follow up because that's right. how we end up breeding resistance. You know, these are still some pretty 
a lot of the antibiotics, even in our commercial ear products, we're hoping we're using them topically. So we're not going to necessarily breed resistance because you're getting such higher concentrations, but there's still some pretty potent antibiotics. I mean, genomycin is a potent antibiotic. Yes. So we yes. still want to be cautious of using yeah. those and using them appropriately and in, in following up, I feel like is the most important because if they're starting to not respond or they're better, but we're not fully resolved yet. And knowing we need to extend that treatment is really, really important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and that's something else. Sometimes I'll tell clients or remind them that um, they need to come back for that recheck. And um, if there's any leftover medication to please call me and let me know if any infection comes back and not start reapplying. Cause then that's how, you know, we can get um, resistant bacteria or they think it's an ear infection and maybe it's not yet, you know, it's just a little inflamed ear. So yeah, definitely. But I, I think I mean, from, from my end, sometimes just from getting history from clients is it's just the misuse of, of, of some of these topicals. So, you know, not using it for the right length of time. Um, and then just kind of using anything that you had left over every time you see an ear infection. So I, I think that kind of education is, is really important. And that's something else I'll tell GPs. Um, that's kind of something nice. I like about Ezotic because there's only a certain amount of volume in there. And so um, it's not like some of the other medications or tubes that there, there's going to be some leftover, you know, after that maybe 10 day or two week period of time that you usually have them treated for. Yeah, it can be hard when they have the opaque bottle and you kind of try to say drops or an amount and you're just kind of like, I don't know, squirted yes. in there. Like I was I know, trying to tell exactly. That's mouth, what they but... say. They're like, it's not really drops. It's kind of like this liquid. I'm like, I know that's why this pump is so much easier. Yeah, no, yeah. definitely. And you brought yeah. up one other thing I'd love to get your opinion about. And that is the case where you, you check and it's just a little inflamed, but there's no infection. So say the dog is shaking their head, they're uncomfortable, but you do your cytology, you see some neutrophils. It's not say a bunch, like maybe you're worried about a topical reaction, but you see some, but you can't find organisms. How do you handle those yeah. cases? Yeah. So I'll have them put a little steroid in the ear. So um, like some hydrocortisone, there's like Zymox HC, or um, if I think it's more, I think it needs more, then I'll have them get um, synodic and just put a few drops, you know, for a few days. Um, I'm figuring it's, it's usually the atopic dog that's flaring up. So I'm trying to make sure all the other things are, are covered. Um, I, I personally I mean, and again, sometimes I think I just see extreme down here in Miami, but, um, you know, sometimes I may have to put them on a, a little short course of prednisone just to kind of calm things down because they may already be on like Apoquel or they may be on Cytopoint. And I just often don't find that those kind of drugs actually kind of prevent these kind of ear flare-ups. Um, and, e and even for some of my atopics that are just constantly getting, or they're just ears or constantly, you know, getting ear infection is that they'll be on some kind of maintenance, you know, steroid eardrop. And I mean, compound something that they'll put like once a week to kind of keep inflammation down. Um, and, and I just find that, um, I think in the past, again, just it's different. I think as you get older, you just kind of, um, you know, not too scared of steroids, but it, it used to kind of scare me, I think after my residency, but now I feel like I, I, I have some better control on some of those atopic dogs with, you know, that have that tendency to get those chronic ear infections, just not being too afraid of using some, some topical steroids, um, you know, carefully, you know, we do have to be careful. I mean, I've seen a, a few that, you know, 
you know, pinnal atrophy or the hair loss. So, so we kind of need to be careful with that. But yeah, so that's what I would probably do for, you know, just seeing that inflammation, a few neutrophils maybe. Yeah. yeah. I love synodic. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I, that's what I tend to use. It is a pretty potent steroid. So you do yes. not need a lot. That's yes. really important to realize. Like it, that's why it's such a small bottle, right? Like yes, they right? buy yes. it and it's so tiny, but exactly. <laughs> I mean, a big dog might, I might say like do two drops, like you do not need a lot. Um, but I agree. I find it helpful in those cases where they're generally doing well, but then they just occasionally start breaking out like with mild otitis and the rest of them's great. So we're not necessarily worried. We need to change our systemic symptomatic therapy. So we might say, okay, you know, my go-to is like, let's do synodic, like two drops or, you know, three drops. Maybe it's a huge dog, um, like twice a week. And let's just see if that little bit as a maintenance kind of calms that down. And I find that really helpful. And we think of otitis obviously a lot with allergies because that's predominantly what we see it with, but do you recognize other diseases where dogs can break out with otitis and say they're not allergic? Um, food allergy. So mm -hmm. I, I've definitely seen dogs with food allergy with otitis and then, um, and then, um, hypothyroidism probably that's probably the, the next big one. Um, I can't say with Cushing's, but I guess the next big category would probably be endocrine yeah, um, yeah. conditions. I mean, I've seen, of course, you know, Demodex, some Demodex dogs with ear issues, um, but definitely allergies and endocrine. I think mm -hmm. the important thing to realize is, again, ears are skin. So pretty yes. much anything you would think of, like if they can get a skin infection from it. So totally agree, like endocrinopathies. Um, I see autoimmune cases that exactly. break out with really bad yes. otitis, Absolutely, anything. Yeah. Yep. Anything. So like, don't just jump to thinking, oh, they have otitis. So it has to be allergies. Like if it's a right. dog that is 12 and never exactly. had issues before, and all of a sudden exactly. it's breaking out with infections. Like we need to rule out other things first. Exactly. Yes, definitely. And talking of steroids, since you said you're not afraid <laughs> of steroids, not that afraid anymore. I don't know. Yeah. I feel like during my residency, I was so like, um, so cautious of it. And now I'm like, I can't be, <laughs> Yeah, you know, sometimes they really need it. We just have to be you know, good about using it. That's right. You just have to be responsible. You want to use them the right way. And obviously when we talk about like management long-term, say of an allergic dog, I think most of us would prefer to steer away from chronic use of steroids, but you also have to recognize where you, they may be necessary. So one example to me would be, uh, say, let's just take the like, classic breed, like a Cocker Spaniel. Cause why not? We know their ears are going downhill, you know, even if we do everything right half the time, but say they come in with a really swollen edematous ear. How are you going to approach that? Like, are you going to put them on something like systemic steroids? Cause I sometimes see, um, I'll get referred cases where they're put on like non-steroidals and to me, that might help maybe with some discomfort, but I don't find it very beneficial as far as actually opening up that edematous ear canal. What do you think? Yeah, same thing. Yeah, I don't find that it, it helps. So I'll put them on steroids two weeks, maybe three weeks, and then I'll use, I'll use a lot of synodic. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have them put a lot down that ear and then we reevaluate. Um, and if it's opened up, fantastic. And, and, and if, if it didn't, then not, not good news, um, for that dog. Um, I mean, something that I'll often do actually in otitis lectures is talk about Cocker Spaniels, how, 
I don't think one ear infection in a cocker spaniel should be ignored. I mean, they need to be worked up really quickly um, because, I mean, their ears can shut down. I mean, I, I remember seeing a one-year-old dog with ear canal so closed that he needed a tikka. I mean, it was wow. just like absolutely horrible. So, um, yeah. So definitely, yes, yeah, I'm not afraid to use steroids, um, maybe go even a little longer. Um, sometimes some owners are like, can we just try a little longer? I'm like, I don't know if it's going to work. <laughs> and then they'll come back like a month later. I'm like, oh, wow, it's, it's, it's better. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Do you, I think the important thing to realize too, um, for people listening is when we talk about like edematous ear canals, something that's really important is to palpate the ear canal itself yes. because in a edematous swollen ear canal, like that is different to me than a fully calcified ear canal, like yes. a fully calcified ear canal. Like you can put them on steroids and you may still make them feel better for sure. Um, but the reality is calcification is irreversible. So sometimes you get cases where if it's been so chronic and the case is older, like owners are just looking for quality of life and they may not pursue something like surgery, but knowing that if there's a really calcified ear or not, and I've, I mean, I literally just rechecked two of my Cocker Spaniels this week where I lost the battle in both of them, you know, like I felt like I did everything right. I felt like we were trying to be aggressive and genetically they just are a tough breed with their ears and they both ended up having to get bilateral tikas and the dogs are amazing and so comfortable. And, you know, the owners are happy and they were, they were financially and emotionally willing to go through that surgery. But I guess one thing I want to end kind of our discussion on Titus today is that like, when do you send them to Tika? Um, you know, and I don't think this is a one size fits all because we can think of the really terrible ears, right. That they're, cal they're calcified shut. They probably got like a rip roaring otitis media. Like it's just going to be more comfortable for the dog. But sometimes there's also the thought of like, when you're just, you know, what can the owner handle? What can they maintain? Like if we have a moderately calcified ear canal and they just cannot keep up with the topicals and say, it's like a really young dog. Like what are some of the things that kind of fuel your decision that it might be best to recommend a Tika? Yeah. If, um, if they can't keep up with the constant cleaning that they'll have to do, um, ear drops, which is probably some steroids, um, and if that dog just keeps relapsing with, with ear infections, then, you know, then I think it's, it's time for a Tika. Um, yeah. just, I mean, some dogs are just head shy. They don't want their ears touched anymore and, and they're painful. And my, my always concern is that there is very likely a middle ear infection that something is just sitting there and then I can't reach it. I can't do anything about it anymore because I really can't. Um, flush it out well. And I mean, the, the last concern I, I, I want to hear is, um, you know, now this dog's vestibular. So now he's, you know, this has reached inner ear and now this has become much more serious. Yeah. So um, yeah, so we'll, we'll get some clients who, I mean, you know, I may not necessarily feel that calcification, but that canal is not a normal ear canal anymore. And I'm like, this is always going to have ear infections you you have to keep up with cleaning. You have to keep up with eardrops and and maintenance. And if you can't, then honestly, for the best of the animal and, and even for you, um, if you can afford it, then definitely I I I think surgery is, is the best best way to go and problem solve. These dogs are so much more comfortable. They actually owners come back. They're like, oh my gosh, my dog is so much more happier. You know, so much more alert. Um, so yeah. 
Yeah. I think it's true. I haven't had one yet. Like, yes, of course they have to get through, you know, the, um, the recovery and it's a big surgery, but you know, knock on wood so far, pretty much all my clients, when we get to that point and I'll tell them like, I'm stubborn. I don't want to lose against an ear. Like I'm only really going to recommend it. Like you said, if it's a quality of life for the owner and patient, like we're not just going to just jump into that as a recommendation. Um, but almost all of them come back and they're like, they're a puppy again. I didn't even realize yes. how much it was bothering them. You know, yeah. your canals insert into her skull. Like it is yes. uncomfortable <laughs> to have yes, an, exactly. a chronically inflamed ear. Um, uh, and that's really tough. And one, one thing I kind of want, I guess one last thing I want to touch on before we end, um, that we haven't really talked about yet is like a unilateral otitis. Cause that's quite different. Um, and yes. not that you can't have it from allergies, but what is your kind of take say of a unilateral otitis and, um, say we know there's a mass in the ear, like, do you prefer to try to go in and, um, uh, and do traction avulsion and take them out? Do you prefer them to go to surgery? Does it kind of depend? It kind of depends. I mean, if I think I might be able to pull them out, you know, during video otoscopy, that then we'll try. Um, if not, then I, I send them to a surgeon. Um, I mean, I often wonder, or if I can take a biopsy and see what it is, but I often wonder if I'm going to pull something out, is it going to grow back? So I don't know the extent of it, you know, maybe send them off for imaging and just see the extent of that. Um, yeah, so, so those are usually what I recommend. Such a hard call. Like I've talked to some surgeons who are like, well, you know, say it's a, um, a young dog that has a pulp or something, you know, we think of them in cats, but you can get them in dogs too. And, um, you know, they're like, well, we just suggest plucking it out first because it's less invasive. So I don't mind going in for most ear masses to take them out, but I just kind of forewarn the owner, like more than likely we can debulk it more than likely we can get a histopathology report on it and know what it is but there's always the concern. It could grow back. We don't get all of it. If it's coming right. from the middle ear, you are blindly pulling like our scope doesn't right. like actually go into the middle ear. So you just have to forewarn them of that. Um, I'd say a, a lot of my clients still will go just for traction avulsion, just to kind of see the extent and see if we can be less traumatic. However, um, yeah, especially those older ones, you're really worried. It could be some sort of tumor, um, it's a lot for them to go through that procedure and then just find out they need to turn around and go to surgery, you know, exactly. a few months later, but sometimes yeah. depending on what the mass is, they might change. They might not have to do a Tika, you know, if it's benign, like, could they do like a, a just a ventral bully osteotomy? So, um, it kind of, I agree. It kind of depends. I just think it was important to mention because when we see unilateral otitis, especially if it's been chronic, like always just been one ear, you really need to rule out a mass or you yes. really need to rule out a foreign body because it's not that common to have such a predominant unilateral otitis with allergies. Allergies. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. With that, you have made it through the end of canine otitis. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fun. Yeah, yeah. It's fun. It's fun. Cause we get to learn and, you know, as dermatologists in general, I think we're we're a pretty passionate bunch for the most part. So, um, it's always fun to kind of just talk about the differences and how we practice. And I think it's awesome yeah. that we all practice differently. And, you know, like yeah. you said, you change, right? Like we can change, like in 10 years, I may decide, you know, I want to completely use different topicals or I might want right. to change yeah. my approach. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the really cool part. Yeah. 
Yeah, like I love our round tables at our meetings because I just love hearing what other dermatologists are doing. I'm like taking notes. I'm like, I'm going to try that. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And it's, sometimes I'm like, ooh, have I been doing that wrong? Because I don't feel like I tried it that way at all, like in some of these really difficult cases. So yeah, it's it's a ton of fun. Um, well, I just want to thank you for being on the podcast today. Yeah, that was fun. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. And of course, everyone has to check out got itchy pet because you, you and Dr. Hernandez, who I just recently had on, like you guys are so much better at like putting the time into the reels and the fun videos and (laughs) it's just really entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of the new thing. I don't know if I have time, I do it. (laughs) It's good. Hey, yeah, that's all you can do at this point. Well, that was an awesome discussion about canine otitis. And thank you, Dr. Rosales, for joining me today. As we went over, we even manage these cases differently. It's okay if you have favorite topicals that you use, but just remember to take the time to educate the client, to remember things like ear flushing along with the topical therapy, what we need to do in the cases that have really swollen edematous ears, and when the cases are end-stage calcified ear canals, then we just need to know it's okay to send them to surgery. We can make these pets more comfortable by managing their chronic otitis and As always, if you guys have ideas for episodes of the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me on my social media at The Derm Fed.